LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Kirby Surprise, who joins us to discuss his book, Synchronicity. You have an amazing ability. Your thoughts and feelings, your memories and experiences are reproduced in the events around you as coincidences. It's not only you with this ability, it's everyone. We all live in a reality in which our thoughts and emotions are mirrored back to us as synchronistic events. This is not some world of science fiction or fantasy. It's the real world around you at this very moment. This seemingly magical ability goes largely unnoticed, unexplained and misunderstood. But this ability is real. It's not magic, but it is the core of most myths about magic. Synchronicity is about getting orientated to powers you already use. If you would rather not spend time staring into the funhouse mirror of your own mind, you might want to turn your attention elsewhere. If, however, you would like to take the chance of embarking on an adventure of exploration through synchronicity, and do not mind that certainty is nowhere to be found, stay tuned. Hello and welcome, Kirby, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. Today, Kirby, we're going to talk about your book, Synchronicity. Um, But just before we dive into that, perhaps you could just explain to listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to have an interest in this area. Sure. Um, I'm a psychologist living in California. Uh, I'm licensed. Um, I got my degree, my my doctoral degree at the Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. I have a master's in transpersonal psychology and in advanced psychodynamic studies. Um, My interest... Currently, my job is for the state of California. I actually work for the correctional system. I am one of the people that assesses, diagnoses, and treats mental illness for severely ill patients. So my job is sort of to professionally do reality testing and see how well other people's reality testing is working. And I find that kind of ironic considering you know my work with synchronicity as well. When I was an undergraduate student, I had been meditating for many years. And... For some reason, suddenly there was an explosion of synchronistic events around me. Now, I had no experience whatsoever with them. I had never even heard of Carl Jung at the time, and no one had ever taught me that these kind of coincidences were even possible. So naturally, you know, at first I figured that I'd had some kind of schizophrenic break and that reality was coming apart. And after I sort of stabilized, I was hanging out in a situation where I would literally be experiencing dozens of very strange, very intense synchronistic events every day with no explanation whatsoever. So um, one day I was uh, taking a friend of mine to a class at the local college. And this was in upstate New York. It was a fall kind of blustery day. 
And I dropped him off and I was in parking lot. And on the way, we had been joking, you know, talking about this and that. And one of the topics was we were laughing at National Enquirer headlines. You know, things like Pope has alien love child, you know, and, you know, talking about this one event where they were claiming that on Long Island, the house turned over on its side during an exorcism. And we were both kind of wishing that we had a job writing this kind of stuff. So I dropped him off and I was sitting in the car waiting for him to finish his class. It was going to be about an hour. And the car was sort of nosed first into this long grassy knoll. And on the end of it, about 75, 50, 75 yards away was this cottage that is used for visiting faculty and lecturers. And I've got the radio on and an ad on the local radio station comes up for the movie Carrie. It was a Stephen King movie about a girl who discovers she has the power to move objects. Now, being a budding psychology student, I'm starting to wonder, what would it be like <clears throat> if you could really move objects? What effect would that have on you psychologically? Because we're based on having to operate in the environment. So how would it change you if you didn't have to get up and walk across the room for less water? So as I'm thinking about this, I'm looking at this house. Now, in the movie Carrie, the uh, woman at the very end destroys her house. And I'm thinking about this uh, you know, bad headline from the Inquirer about the house that moved on its side. And I'm looking at this house, and I'm going, gee... What would it feel like to move a house, something that large, that's outside of the range of normal human action? And I'm wondering, really, what would that be like? And as I watch, this house starts to shudder and shake. And I'm very, very kind of shocked at this. And then it literally rolls over on its side right in front of me. You know, it slams over and the roof is facing me. And being aware of synchronistic events, it's like, you know, this is what I was just thinking, and I'm kind of absolutely blown away, shocked. Now, my first reaction is, well, is it possible I did this? And not being completely crazy, I was, no, that's not possible. People don't do that. Okay, am I asleep? I went to this sort of lucid dreaming check and found, no, I'm awake. But there the house was. So I decided to do, try another experiment. I said, okay, in the Carrie movie, the last thing she does is she crushes her house into absolute rubble. So I said, well, if I did that, I want to see the house crush itself into rubble. It's sort of a, oh, yeah, well, try that. Now the house starts to shake again. In a few moments, there's breaking windows and two-by-fours passing through walls and the center of the house starts to crush in on itself and it starts to collapse and splinter. Now, by this time, I think I had the biggest adrenaline rush in my life. I was completely shocked. And then a moment later, there's a flash of yellow paint above the house and the biggest bulldozer I have ever seen climbs over the top of this house, finishes crushing the house into rubble by running back and forth and starts to load the rubble into dump trucks that I couldn't see because the house was between me and the construction equipment. Now, as shocking a coincidence as this was, I realized that I had just gotten exactly what I asked for. I wanted to know what it would be like to move a house, what effect it would have on me. And I got the experience directly through this synchronistic event. Now, I had been trying to figure out what causes these events, and I had been chasing my tail for quite a while. 
I mean, when someone experienced these things, even now in my practice, when I find people that are seeing these events, which in psychiatry are called ideas or thoughts of reference. In other words, something, idea you have, you make a reference to an event on the outside. It's considered a psychotic symptom, by the way. Um, there's no good explanation for them. You know, in psychiatry, we assume that uh, it's just a misinterpretation. And in sort of the metaphysical world, um, there's a, a thousand explanations. There's angels and UFOs and paranoid conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff that is never and cannot be proven by the nature of the speculation. So I looked at this event and uh, I realized a couple of things. The first was this was definitely part of my unconscious processes. The, you know, Young was wrong. There is an explanation. He said that, well, this is obviously occurring outside of time and space somewhere and we can only think in terms of time and space, so we'll never figure this out. Well, it occurred to me that, well, there is a connection. What I was thinking got displayed before me. It got manifested rather directly. And all the events that led up to it, there were many subconscious processes involved before the event. So I realized that what I was seeing was a reflection. I was seeing part of my thought processes being manifest a-causally outside of the normal way that we are taught linear time works, that the essence of it was the meaning perceived by the event, which means, again, if synchronicity is characterized by meaning, then it's characterized by our internal processes. So I figured that out. There was an internal connection. I already knew that we can talk to our unconscious. You know, in fact, we do that all the time. And that I would never consciously be able to figure this out by myself too powerful and strange and weird. So I did an amazing thing. I asked my unconscious, I said, okay, show me how this works. Now, when I say unconscious, I also mean in the Jungian sense, the collective unconscious, those places where the illusion of separateness disappears. So I basically said to my inner self in the universe, look, I can't figure this out. Show me how this works. The coincidences I had been experienced immediately changed. I started to be given information. Read this, compare this, compare that. And slowly, over the course of years, a model revealed itself that is completely understandable, that works perfectly with modern models of physics, neuropsychology, um, and strangely enough, many of the mystical traditions that our ancestors have handed down to us. And what it comes down to is there is a complex physiological and energy works perfectly with string theory explanation for how these events work. They are reflections. They are reflections of the individuals that observe them. Now, people want simple answers. Unfortunately, this phenomenon is not simple. And the explanation for completely how it works is a little complicated. What it comes down to is that our brains, these master supercomputers of the universe, create our reality for us. Neurologically, you're experiencing right now a hallucination. You have billions of digital sensors pointed out in the environment, neurons. They feed trillions of bits of information along digital networks, your nerves, to the universe's largest known supercomputer, your brain, which before you ever perceive any of this information from the outside, 
drastically alters all of it. You filter, you change things, you create a reality based on what you've been looking for. And I can get a little later into some of the evolutionary psychology of it. There are two parts to synchronicity. The first part is your mind filters out things that you normally are not interested in and augments patterns that you've been paying attention to. This is the reason why if you become obsessed with synchronistic events and look for them, your brain, your automated supercomputer that's trying to help you manage reality will say, oh, he wants to see this kind of thing. We'll stop filtering it out and show it to him. So you pay attention, more of them show up. They show up in the pattern that you're looking for. One of the great mysteries of humanity is, why do we have all these great religions, shamanism, belief systems, that all seem different from each other, yet these intelligent, well-meaning and sincere people all see the world so drastically differently? It's because they project their beliefs out into the environment and they receive confirmations, like Carlos Castaneda talked about in um, his Don Juan books. You uh, have a thought, and you see it reflected back to you as these events. Now, the fact that the environment does actually change is initially an irrational statement. But actual science shows us that we do alter the environment. Now, when I took my graduate degree, we have to learn experimental design. We learn the statistics, how to create an experiment, to give us very exact information and to know precisely what our confidence range is. Because science is a wonderful thing. It doesn't tell us what's real. It tells us the probability, what's most likely to be true. It doesn't have an absolute, but it does answer questions very narrowly. And it was found more than 100 years ago that you know we change things that we observe. The very best experimental design that we have is called a double-blind experiment. In a double-blind experiment, the subjects of the experiment do not know what the researcher is looking for. Obviously, so they don't try to do what the guy wants or report it the way he wants it. But also, the person carrying out the actual experiment, the guy in the lab coat that's on the line telling the subjects, do this, do that, they also don't know what the researcher who designed the experiment is looking for so that the person conducting the experiment doesn't give subtle clues to the subjects. Now, the reason we do this is not because people are insincere or because they try to cheat. It's because we know that what you expect changes the outcome. Synchronistic events in one term or another are actually figured into experimental design. Now, the explanation for how this is possible is rather long, and perhaps we can get to it later. But it does look like, and this has been verified for 70 years now, that we change our environments by the way we think by about 3 to 6%. So the explanation for synchronicity, there's two sides. One is that supercomputer in your head, that three-pound universe, filters and changes the information coming in to show you patterns. That's one part of it. The other part is you actually do 
create synchronistic events by altering your environment by three to five percent and it follows what you've been thinking. This explanation, this twofold physics and neuropsychology together is what has been missing. People have been assuming that this is either delusional or that there is some external agency doing it. Now, I cannot guarantee that there aren't some kind of, you know, non-physical things going on in the universe, but I'm a scientist. I have a passion for knowing what's real and what's likely to be true. The only evidence that we have for the decades and decades that this has been researched is that we change the information we perceive and that these events are caused by us. Now, this pattern recognition uh, that you spoke about, uh, there's a section in the, early on in the book where you point out that this is something that is, has an evolutionary advantage and it was developed in early man, basically connected with our survival. Starting at the very beginning, why do we have a brain? One-celled organisms figured out that if it, they could remember what the environment basically tasted like when food was available and steer towards that memory, it gave them an advantage. So we developed neural tissue, which is basically memory. It's all it is. The human being evolved a very tight evolutionary niche. We've got lousy claws, our teeth aren't much good, and we're lousy in a fight. I mean, a raccoon can take us out. But what we do is we compare patterns. Our brain is a massive memory storage device. It juggles data. Now, you can see how being able to discern the patterns in the grass, whether you're on a savanna looking for gazelles or not to be eaten by lions, having a really good memory about what nuances in your environment mean either food or death helps you survive. But there's an even greater possibility what if you could not have to bother simply reacting to the environment, but you could alter the environment? Instead of going to the food, you know, what if you could make events happen that gave you a chance of getting the food, you know, a, a sort of a percentage advantage? So when I say we have a three to six percent chance of changing the environment, we actually shift it appears to be shifting the environment. We'll get into what's actually happening in a little bit. We shift things in our favor depending on what we're thinking. So if you're a hunter on the grasslands and you're looking for an antelope and you can shift the possibility of coming across the game you're looking for by three to six percent, that is a massive advantage in the wild. Doing that every day over the course of a lifetime is a survival advantage. Now, one of the mistakes that I believe is made in sort of new age philosophies is this massive form of wishful thinking. People want to be able to engineer their own reality. This is sort of the ultimate dream, and there's many books out there saying that, you know, you create your own reality, and it's a great, you know, great desire, but it's not true. I mean, anybody that's had to pay taxes, have an argument with their wife, get up and go to work in the morning when they're tired or hungover, knows you don't get to engineer your own reality. And there's nobody out there that's doing it either. But 
the data shows you have a three to five percent, three to six percent effect on changing the randomness of events in your environment. This evolutionary advantage. Now, if you can think about it today, the most modern science we have is working on organics. Okay, they're realizing that if you have a complex problem, let's say, you know, you have PCBs in the environment and you're trying to clean it and you can't figure out how to get these toxic chemicals out of the soil. Well, they're finding one of the best things you can do is you take vast cultures of bacteria, you introduce the toxin in there, and then you see which few cells survive. Then you grow those, you reintroduce the toxin, and more of them survive. And you keep doing this until you've developed an organism that eats the poison you're looking for. Organic material, the basic real complexity of natural science, changes and adapts to its environment. You know, these organic systems are real technology. What we're doing is pale imitations. I've got to think that if it were possible in any way to gain an evolutionary advantage by having some foothold in controlling the environment, organic systems would figure it out. And that's exactly what they did. We are connected to the environment in complex ways that this explanatory feature that I've created can explain through things like string theory to give us a slight advantage. We evolved to be able to do this. Now, most of the people who play with synchronistic events wind up in sort of religious corners. They believe that God is helping them. They believe that they are specially gifted. Um, you know, one of our dearest desires as human beings is a sort of narcissistic need to feel special. So people will believe, you know, special magical powers, divine grace. Well, the fact is everybody does this and you can't even turn it off. The reason the house rolled for me was because I was paying attention obsessively to synchronistic events. I was telling both the filtration systems of the mind and projecting out into the environment an intense need to see the events themselves. When somebody does that, when they start following the trail of these coincidences, they start seeing their own fantasies and they start seeing them magnified in the environment. That's why Christians see a Christian universe. They see God the Father and Jesus changing things around them. Muslims see Allah intervening in the environment. Buddhists see the bodhisattvas. They pray to for enlightenment, helping them along the path. But they're creating the path themselves. I deal with many delusional and psychotic clients. A lot of them have synchronistic events around them because their own natural filters are gone. And they see whatever it is they look for. This is a maladaptation of this evolutionary advantage. So although synchronistic events give you an advantage on whatever you're looking for, for instance, instead of needing an antelope to feed your family, maybe you're looking for a good deal on a blue Toyota. Maybe you're looking for some hot woman in a bar. These are all things that you know, we hunt for. There is an advantage to looking for what you want in the environment. It changes what you're presented with. Almost everybody has needed something desperately 
thought they didn't have a chance of getting it. And then something strange happens and presents them with an opportunity. This is a mirroring effect. Your thoughts mirror into the environment and what comes back to you are these coincidences, the meaning of which is not what created them. It's not the mythology of whatever juggled the events. The meaning is your thoughts themselves change the environment for you, but not drastically, three to five percent. Now, the bell curve in science is sort of this distribution of how things occur. You know, the most common events occur in the center of the bell, the sort of, you know, 80% of everything. On the far ends, like what we call standard deviation out, there are unusual events that occur, you know, once every, you know, 10,000 trials. Some synchronistic events are like that. If you pay attention to the events themselves, they become more frequent, they become more intense, they become, you know, sort of further out on the curve, because instead of looking for the antelope, you're looking for the events. This is the reason why people who start to look for synchronistic events not only find them, but they have a tendency to get lost in them. They ascribe meanings to them and causes to them that are part of their own thoughts and fantasies. And then they see those dramas reflected on the outside. For instance, when I first realized I was looking at reflections, I needed a way to prove this was true. Because saying that we essentially are doing magic without having a, yet a physics explanation for it is crazy. So I built a computer program that graphed random numbers. It would use a random number generator to do lines on the screen. And if you hit a certain range of numbers, the lines would get further or closer apart. And I found that this simple program could be used you could think at the computer and the display would change. Now, there's actually toys that do this now. You know, there was a guy named J.B. Ryan. He was a psychologist at Duke University in the early 30s. And a guy came into him and said, I'm a gambler. And Doc, I know this is crazy, but I can change the odds. When I throw the dice, I can make numbers come up, not what I want, but more often than chance. And I make some money with this. So Ryan, you know, being a real scientist, instead of kicking the guy out of his office or suggesting he go see a psychiatrist, said, okay, let's take out a notebook and some dice. Show me. So he took out six pairs of dice and a notebook on which he was going to record every throw. And he told the guy, all right, make the number six come up on these six pairs of dice more often than chance. And the guy did it. He did it like 6% above normal. Ryan became obsessed. How is this possible? Over the next 40 years, he did thousands of trial runs. He opened up a center. He became completely obsessed with how this is possible. He did die, die tosses, coin tosses. He did random number generators. He did the way mists fall on patterns on tables. He did nuclear decay. He did all these experiments and they all showed that the subjects had a three to six percent chance of changing the environment. Now, in statistics, we use a thing called the p-value. It's a probability value. And it shows how likely something is to be a chance or not. Ryan's work 
came out and said that it was literally, in some cases, hundreds of millions to one against this being random. Now, his research also found some things that were quite extraordinary. Carl Jung, who had known about Ryan's work and had conversations with him, said that Ryan's work was a demonstration of synchronicity in the laboratory. He was demonstrating synchronistic events through these die tosses. But Jung's entire model was based on a thing called archetypes. He believed that these synchronistic events, these meaningful coincidences, were generated by forms of some kind out in the non-physical universe beyond time and space, and that human beings generating them was impossible. And certainly, Ryan's work would completely upend Jung's work, because Ryan was saying, humans do this, we're doing it. Now, Jung had a serious problem. His theories about the collective unconscious, that we're all sort of one way down there on the ocean floor somewhere, were so drastically at odds with modern science and psychology that he was terrified of being ridiculed even more for saying that basically humans do magic. So he could not accept the scientific data that said that people were causing the event. What Ryan found was some amazing things. Now, he started doing experiments, for instance, with giving people a cup of coffee before these coin tosses and die tosses. He found out that giving someone caffeine gave them a greater ability to change the events around them. So think about this, a physiological event. Caffeine is increasing brain activity, is causing greater synchronistic events around the person. There's a physiological connection. He gave them shots of alcohol and found out that this depressant of brain activity lowered the ability to change the randomness of the events in the trials. Then he found something truly astonishing. He found that in the beginning of these die tosses, let's say a subject was to do a hundred die tosses aiming for a particular number. In the beginning of the experiment, their ability to do this was quite high. Let's say, for argument's sake, 6%. 10 or 12 tosses in, their ability to change the randomness of the die dropped drastically. By 15 or 20 tosses, it was down to normal. At 25 to 30 tosses, the number they were aiming for was coming up less than random, like they were actually suppressing the target. That would go on for 30, 40 throws, and then suddenly the ability would start to come back. So say around toss 75, you were back at normal randomness. At toss 85, you were above again. And towards the end of the experiment, they were again changing reality in their favor, five or 6%. He realized that what he was looking at was the person's mood. In the beginning of the experiment, the person was excited. This was new. It was interesting. Wow, they were paying attention. When they started getting towards the middle of the die toss, it was boring. They didn't want to do it anymore. They were minds were wandering. They were thinking about other stuff. It actually suppressed what they were looking for. Towards the end of the experiment, they got interested again. Oh, this is going to be over. What's going to happen? <clears throat> Did I really do this? What's the result going to be? Their attention refocused on the task. 
and the ability to change these little synchronistic events in their favor increased. Now, what I realized reading all the research was that there's not much emotionally or psychologically to relate to, to the pattern of the way dice fall on a table. Now, Ryan tried to find a physical cause for this. He isolated the dice, he put them in chambers, he did all kinds of things to look for a physical something pushing at the dice. He never found anything. Something sort of in the walls of reality was just causing the events coincidentally to change in the favor of the direction of attention of the subjects. I realized through reading string theory and probability theory that what was actually happening was we're shifting through probabilities. There's no physical force involved whatsoever. The other thing is that there's nothing particularly complex about dice. There's nothing to relate to. You may have emotional reaction to whether or not you can cause the event, but it's got nothing to do with how your mother or father treated you when you grew up, you know, your preferences, your interests, you know, your frustrations, your loves, your desires. None of that is reflected in a die toss. Since there is no physical force involved, Jung was correct. It's outside of time and space. It operates on dimensions like they're talking about in string theory now that aren't dependent on the normal four dimensions of time and space. It's outside. So are we in some respects. So the entire environment is available to do your dice toss experiment with. It's not just a table. It's, for instance, I have a lot of clients who talk to TVs and radios. They talk back. It actually happens. You know, it's not a joke and it's not a psychotic symptoms. They're actually reflecting their internal processes off the environment to such a degree that you can talk to the environment. Now, here's the thing. You're talking to your own unconscious. I'll tell you a story with one of my clients. At the time, I was working almost exclusively with people who are quite psychotic or delusional. My job as a psychologist is um, I will be given a case and I will read the person's entire life history. Either, you know, if they have a criminal history, a psychological history, a test history, um, educational histories, you know, stacks of papers about the person's life, previous diagnoses. One of my specialties is when someone can't figure out a diagnosis on somebody, you know, they give me the 12 diagnoses in their history and I interview them and figure it out. This guy came to me and he had a diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. This type of schizophrenia is characterized by either hearing voices constantly or delusional systems that you cannot talk the person out of. So this guy sat down after I'd read all his materials and I did the, I was interviewing him and uh, I was talking to him and you can tell when someone's schizophrenic, you know, if you're professional, you know, there's sort of, there's something missing, you know, if it's negative symptoms, they're like not reacting or there's extra stuff going on or there's strangeness about their thought processes. I didn't see any of this in this guy. You know, he's been diagnosed as a schizophrenic for 35 years now. And I'm talking to him and he's clearly depressed. He's slumped in his chair. He's going like, yeah, uh, right, okay, kind of answers. So finally I said to him, look, um, I don't get this. You have a diagnosis of being schizophrenic. I don't see it. You're clearly depressed. I get that part. Why are they telling me you're schizophrenic? And he says, oh, you know, you wouldn't believe me. They never believe me. So I'll go, look, you know, try me. <clears throat> so he says, well, TVs and radios talk to me, and um, 
people speak my thoughts out loud all the time. Fair enough. That's a fairly paranoid schizophrenic kind of delusional system. So I ask him, um, okay, well, tell me how this happened. You know, when did this start? And he said, well, you know, I was in my early 20s and I was walking down the street one day and I was thinking about this question in my life. And I passed by a shop window with a display of color TVs. And the news announcer, who was on 20 TVs, looked directly at me and answered the question as if he was talking directly to me. And there was, the answer was correct, and it totally blew me away. And he went on to say how he was so astounded about this, and it so disrupted his reality, that he became obsessed with how this was possible. TVs and radio started talking to him, having conversations with him. And he said that he knew almost immediately that God was talking to him directly. And why did he assume this? Well, in his belief system, the only thing he had ever been taught in his sort of, you know, Christian ethos was that the only way these things are possible is through God. There's no other explanation. After all, who but an omnipotent, omniscient being could manipulate a radio, a TV broadcast to talk directly to you. And then he thought, well, why would God do this to talk to me? And then God started telling him that he was special, that he had a mission, that he was supposed to do some great thing. And he went around telling all his friends that was a mistake. His friends started to drift away from him because he started chasing these messages. You know, a TV commercial would tell him, go here now. You know, he was trying to get someone to go to a carpet sale or something, and he would go there. You know, and there would be another message he'd find, and he'd go follow that one. And so his friends drifted away, you know, gradually. Uh, he lost his job because he went to work and said, wow, did you see that? The radio just talked to me. People thought he was crazy. Eventually, they hospitalized him. And unfortunately, as beneficial as hospitalization can be for mental illness, it separates you from your life. You tend to lose your job, your credibility, your employability, things like that. And he lost all that. He became homeless gradually. Uh, he went through repeat institutionalizations. Now, the amazing thing was, for a true paranoid schizophrenic, if they tell you they're the Messiah, you know, they mean it. If they say, I have some special purpose, it's an absolute defense mechanism against some fear or uncertainty. This guy was not telling me he was the Messiah. He was saying, there's some special purpose for me. I have no idea what it is. I'm completely baffled. You know, a true paranoid schizophrenic will try to convince you that he is God's chosen one. This guy was telling me, yeah, there's lots of people like me around. I've talked to lots of people that are talking to God through TV sets, and they don't, you know, a lot of them don't know what's going on either, and I don't know why or what my purpose is, and, you know, it's totally ruined my life. You know, instead of saying, you know, I am blessed, he's like, why are you doing this to me? So I told the guy, look, here's what's going on. You are seeing your thoughts reflected back at you. You passed that TV set in the store window and saw one of your thoughts reflected. The only explanation you had was this religious explanation. You, the religious explanation is a thought. It reflects back from the environment like any other thought. It doesn't mean it's valid. 
It doesn't mean it's got anything to do with consensus reality. It's just a mirrored reflection. However, he took it as real. This is the central point in synchronicity for working with it. The events are real, the meanings are not. They have no more meaning than a dream. So what this guy did essentially was he dreamt while he was awake, caused a reflection in his environment, and he took the dream to be real objectively. And he was off and running. Now, there's nothing more ego gratifying than believing that God is talking to you specially. It's a high. So that emotional boost, the obsessive attention he paid to this belief system, caused it to magnify until the entire universe was talking directly to him. And since he thought that there must be a reason, all the tonalities of there is a part divine purpose in this landed directly on this poor man. He was chasing his tail for 30 years. It ruined his life. So I told him, look, you do this. There is a physics explanation and a neurological explanation, and I can sit down and explain it to you eventually, but I guarantee you, you are the one doing this. Now, at that point, this man who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia thinks I'm crazy. Because, of course, how could this be true? So I told him something very simple. You know, go back to your room, watch TV. Instead of listening for God talking to you, listen for Walt Disney or Bugs Bunny. Pick the personality that you're listening for. Pick the message you want to hear. And he did it. He came back for his next session and was, oh, my God, I've been talking to myself all these years. He was never schizophrenic. He was never mentally ill. He'd been medicated for decades for something that's not a symptom. Now, the amazing thing is that all of us are doing this. This is not a special ability. There's no chosen with this. There's no talent for it. It's an evolved, innate survival mechanism that everybody uses whether they want to or not. The reason why many people don't see synchronistic events constantly around them is they've been taught since childhood that these events are not valid and that they're not real. When a child goes to a parent and says, this amazing thing just happened to me, I was watching My Little Pony and I looked out the window and a pony walked down the street and it's magic and yada yada. Well, when you say that at four, the parents go this sort of Disney route and go, yes, witch upon a star, the universe is a magical place, enjoy yourself, yada, yada, yada. When you're eight, nine years old and you start saying things like this, your parents start saying, look, you got to get ready to get a job. You know, it's time to put this magical thinking away. It's a childhood thing. Time to introduce you into the real world. This is an act of cognitive castration. The kids write, the world is magical. It is reflecting their thoughts. But they need it to be guided into understanding that it's just their thoughts. Their thoughts don't change collective reality for everybody. They're looking in a mirror. It's a fun mirror. Kids play dress up in this mirror. They dress up in saint costumes. They dress up in prisoner and persecuted person costumes. They dress up in any personal mythology they want, and the synchronistic events, being mirrors, play back for them, these. Some people learn the absolute joy and playful creativity using this in their lives. Some people go off the deep end and get paranoid. 
One of the things I did after I created my little computer program, which was great because you could sit down with people and show it to them and know you weren't crazy, was I figured, okay, if these events are this reflective, I should be able to play out themes from Star Wars if I want to. I mean, after all, we have people in major religious systems and people in their own shamanic systems playing out these personal mythologies and getting this reinforcement. Why can't I do this for entertainment? So I ran some experiments where I formatted the environment into Star Wars, you know, into Lord of the Rings. And suddenly there's all these Lord of the Rings coincidences, all these Star Wars coincidences. And the great thing about that is, you know, they're not real when you start. So, for instance, not mean to cast, cast aspersions on any particular religions, but you know, you wonder why people can strap bombs on themselves and go and detonate themselves for religious reasons. It's because you get a version of reality that reflects what you're thinking. If you format your reality towards those kind of views, you will get confirmations from the environment, reflections of your thoughts that tell you it's real. That concludes part one of our interview with Kirby Surprise. Be sure to tune in next time for part two. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.